just two weeks left of the Vasa retreat time. As is our custom, come together on Uposita Day to hear the Patimokha and reflect on our practice, starting with the Vinaya training. Reflecting on our attitude towards the practice, reviewing our knowledge of the way of practice, sila, samadhi, panya. Maybe it's also a time to reflect back on our vasa. It's normal there'll be periods where we feel energetic and inspired. Other periods where we may feel there's more obstacles in our mind, more distracted, more lethargic. Plenty to learn from. When we reflect on our practice, it's always good to start with our external behavior, our sila. Reflect on whether there's any areas we need to improve, whether we're creating suffering for ourselves or problems with the world in the way we relate to the world, other people and the material world. As bhikkhus, we have very few possessions. A bowl, three robes, a few other things. We have a kuti. doesn't belong to us. We are lent it by the sangha. So we're learning to live contented with few possessions going against the stream of the world play life, which is tends to be about accumulating more possessions, more wealth, more things, more experiences. The bhikkhu has to be very patient, learn to get by with few possessions and not indulging whatever wants, desires come up. We're fortunate that we have enough of what we need to live, but still it's very simple. So we constantly have to reflect and review that, remind ourselves why we live like this, what's the purpose. In a Buddha, encourage this simplicity and fewness of wishes because it helps to train the mind, see our own mind, to understand the Four Noble Truths, 
See where suffering comes from, from craving, ignorance, craving and attachment. And just the daily use of our requisites and reflecting on that already is showing us about suffering and its causes and how to deal with it wisely. We eat in our bowl, one meal a day, food that's generously donated by the laity. We're learning to eat just enough to keep us going for a day and a night to practice. We learn to look after our bowl. It's our inheritance from the Buddha, our robes and bowl. They show to everyone that we're monks. <clears throat> and because we only have one set of robes, one bowl, we have to learn to look after them. So we have many rules about how to keep the bowl, store it, clean it, sun it. Same with our robes. We learn to look after them, wash them, sun them, fold them, keep them safe. This gives us a certain freedom from that tendency to just want to always accumulate more. Once we get used to the lifestyle, it's, it liberates us from many of our old habits. We don't have a lot to worry about or think about. The more we train in looking after the requisites and contemplating them, provides a very f peaceful foundation for our practice. The other important part of our external behavior is because it's just learning to be in harmony with others. To respect, have kindness for the lay supporters and to respect, have kindness for the other bhikkhus we live with. Learning to restrain our speech, our actions, so again we don't create suffering or problems for others, for ourselves. It's a vital area for our practice. If we want to deep, deepen our samadhi, deepen our insight, first of all we have to sort out our behavior on the outside. Otherwise, the mind just won't settle down. And insight and clarity that we aim for to really liberate the mind from the causes of suffering, it just won't arise if we don't sort out our external behavior first. And the Vinaya is here to assist us, it's a tool for training. Obviously at first we're learning a lot of new things, new habits, good habits. So it takes a lot of effort. Sometimes we get frustrated with that, frustrated having to put energy into learning to live as a community, various practices, training rules and so on. We might feel frustrated, oh, I really want to just meditate. We have to expand our understanding of meditation or bhavana, as bhavana relates to body, speech and mind, internal and external behavior. 
So the way we relate to the requisites, the way we relate to other people around us, this is bhavana, this is meditation as well. This is where we develop sati vinaya, mindfulness arising from our practice and training in the vinaya. So we have to learn how to reflect back with mindfulness and wisdom on our own behavior. What we say, what we do, is it falling in line with the principles of Dhamma, with the Vinaya? <clears throat> and Vinaya is not something we just use to look at others and dwell on their faults. If we notice others don't practice properly or missing in some aspects of their practice, really that's their responsibility they're going to have to sort that out. It's not for us to dwell on or judge or use the Vinaya like a weapon to get at others. Something just to reflect on. And Jen Charles said, as far as living with others, you only really need to look at others maybe 10% of the time. You get to know those who are well-behaved, diligent, sincere. If there are others who are not so well-behaved, not so diligent, will you notice that? Well, just 10% of the time and then drop it and put most effort into your own practice. What you do well when you, you know that's good, that's supportive. Where you're still lacking, that's where you have to improve and put effort. The good we learn from others, the example we get from teachers, senior monks, very valuable. But what we have to do is internalize that, try and emulate, develop the same kind of qualities. All the faults we see in others, it's just something to notice and avoid for oneself or remedy in one's own practice look back and say, do I do that? Do I have that tendency? If you can find it, well, there's no point getting upset with others if you can still do that and you, that's where you have to practice. The place of practice is ourselves. We don't practice other people. They have to do that. Ajahn Chah said in any group of people there'll always be this dynamic. Some are diligent, hardworking, careful. Some will be more self-centered, more lazy, selfish, distracted. <coughs> it's something to know and to learn from but not to get angry with those who maybe don't follow the Vinaya so well or don't do things so well and just learn from it. It's always those who miss the meetings or come late for work or whatever it is. They're going to have to learn for themselves. If they don't learn, it almost certainly be an obstacle for them. Maybe even take them out of the robes. But we don't have to get angry with them. We just notice how oh, it's like that. The ones who use their skills in the practice, put effort in, well, we learn from them as well. Oh, it's like that. The ones who get some peace, 
can see the causes come from their putting effort into the practice. So we learn to use wisdom, mindfulness, wisdom, practicing the Vinaya, training in this, helps us to develop a firm foundation on the outside so we can live peacefully with others, peacefully with the world, live simply so we don't need a lot, we become very independent of our old habits of craving and attachment, we become more aloof from that. Whether we have a lot or a little, doesn't matter. We can be at ease, be at peace with whatever the conditions are. The weather's good, the weather's not good. There's plenty of food and drinks, there's not much. You learn to be independent of these external conditions by living according to Vinaya rather than according to Kilesa, craving. Obviously this takes time, so we have to give ourselves that time. Patiently keep putting effort into reflecting on our use of the requisites, on how we relate to the world, how we're following the monastic routine, training rules and so on. And just keep learning. If we make mistakes, well they can be our teachers. They can actually point out to us where we lost our mindfulness or lost our wisdom and understanding. The aim of it is to help establish a foundation so that on a, on a daily basis we're at peace with the external world so that internally we can refine our awareness, refine our practice of mindfulness. One thing leads to the other. If you're reflecting on these, your external behavior, well then naturally you're seeing the relationship between your internal states of mind. And you start to see the hindrances more clearly. How they take away our peace, how they confuse us, bring us moods, bring us suffering. hindrances we often hear they're like robbers or thieves because when they take over the mind which is much of the time they're robbing us of our own peace happiness so our real aim is we learn to refine our mindfulness sustain it internally is to get beyond these hindrances so we can experience some real happiness. Happiness of not being too concerned about the world. We've established our commitment to the Vinaya, we're training in that. In the rest of the world we don't really need to worry too much about because we're not creating a lot of suffering or problems anywhere. So we can learn to just let go of a lot of internal mental chatter comes through the hindrances. We don't have to worry a lot about the future. Worries, anxiety, concerns. We have the freedom just to dwell more in the present moment. 
knowing that if we're establishing ourselves in mindfulness and investigating the Dhamma in the present moment, well, that will be the best conditioning force for the future. And if we're putting effort into the practice in the present, we don't have to concern ourselves too much from the past. <coughs> we know our past, we can remember things. But really the past is just a memory and the important thing is to have the mindfulness to know that as it comes up and then treat it with wisdom. So you learn from what you can remember. The good was good, the bad was bad. And then we have to drop it. We're constantly using our meditation techniques, the mindfulness of the breath, the body, mindfulness of where we're going, what we're doing, clear comprehension of what we're doing. It's ways to, to keep bringing the mind back to the present moment, learning to sustain mindfulness, not being too concerned about the rest of the world, other people, other things going on. It's enough just to have a, one eye on things externally, and then the other eye has to be very firmly turned internally, what's going on in your own mind. And even then, it's not like we have to squeeze the mind to try and get rid of things. It's enough just to develop mindfulness on an object as you're focusing on the breath, it's just natural that memories and thoughts will come up. You don't have to squeeze them out, but you just keep turning the attention to your meditation theme object. Quite naturally the mind will start to turn away from its interest in all the other thoughts, feelings, memories. In the end, it's quite an automatic and natural process simply by putting attention on the breath. In the mind, there's not much space in the mind for any of the other stuff or the other mental activity that arises. There's enough space in the mind just to let it go and not to get caught up in it and not to judge it, jump on it which is what we tend to do when we first start meditating. We're often very idealistic. We say, have to have a mind free from thought, free from emotions and memories, feelings. <coughs> That's all just ideals which tend to complicate and feed more hindrances, get more irritated with ourselves because the mind's not settling down get more distracted, that often feeds more desire for sensuality because we're not satisfied with what we've got, we're not content. Or else we just get fed up and go to dullness, lethargy. Maybe we go to doubt, start doubting about why we're practicing and our meditation technique and so on. So the hindrances, once they take over, they tend to just support and feed each other endless different cycles of craving taking over the mind. As we know, nati tanha samanati, there's no river like the river of craving. It's endless. The only way to 
deal with this is to keep returning to mindfulness of the meditation object, mindfulness in the present moment. As we start to do that, the craving subsides, the hindrances start to abate, then we can reflect a bit, undermine them even more, use some wisdom, see where the hindrances are coming from. This is much of our daily practice. Just keep returning to the mind. We reflect on our external behavior and then turn in attention inwards and see the link with our own internal mental world. Greed, anger, or greed, hatred, delusion arising, and how that's affecting everything. Our mind is the forerunner of all that we do, what we say we do, we think. And if craving keeps hijacking it, well, the results are more mental disturbance, more discontent, more suffering. If we keep setting aside the craving, become more <clears throat> aloof from it, more detached from it, going to the breath, going to mindfulness, going to wisdom, then the mind is, starts to settle down, gets that clarity, puts craving in its place, in perspective, and it's much easier to start letting go. If you have a, a period where there's some good mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, and the mind steadies, becomes more one-pointed, that gives you the inspiration to keep practicing, gives you the basis for wise reflection. You can really understand what a peaceful mind is and how happy it is because it is not concerned about other things. That happiness is very useful even if it's not sustained for very long. It will give us that focal point so when the mind is not happy, it's more discontent and agitated, well we know that. So you get to know the mind that is calm, the mind that is not calm. All the conditions that lead to the mind losing its calm, becoming more agitated, will they become more obvious? External behavior that doesn't support the mind calming down becomes obvious, starts to be seen as more counterproductive, more destructive to our inner peace internal behavior, you know, where you put your mind, what you dwell on. We start to get tired of always dwelling on giving unwise attention to those objects which feed the hindrances, cause us more disturbance. The mind gets quicker at wanting to drop things and sees the harm, the danger of dwelling on negative things, dwelling on sensuality, dwelling on dullness, lethargy. Wherever the hindrances come up, we start to tire of just following them, as we know they just lead to more discontent, dissatisfaction, unhappiness. Even though we, depending on our karma, we have more or less hindrances arising and they keep arising. 
at least we get this understanding established, we know what we have to do, so then doubt can't take over the mind. And it's more just putting putting it back to us, it's really whether we're putting the effort in or not. It's not so much doubt in the technique or why we're doing it or what the purpose is. It's more just, am I doing it or not? Am I going to put effort in today or not? And I say the Sodapana is somebody who's established this understanding. They understand what is unwholesome karma, what leads to suffering. Even though the roots of that, greed, hatred, delusion, are still there in the heart. They understand it as the cause of suffering. They know kilesa causes suffering. Their understanding is so clear, they don't want to follow kilesa. Whereas the, the further, the higher levels of the area Pugala, Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahant, is more about the effort put in to bringing that understanding to fruition. The refinement of mindfulness, the refinement of effort, refinement of wisdom. In the beginning of our practice, it's establishing this clear understanding what is wholesome, what is unwholesome and then acting accordingly. When you see unwholesome dhammas arising, these are to be abandoned. If they have been abandoned, it's also the effort to prevent them from arising again. In learning lessons, learning techniques to take our mind away from the causes and conditions for further unwholesome dhammas, further suffering. The understanding of what is wholesome dhammas, and acting accordingly, developing them, bringing them up, developing them. If we really want to progress in our practice, we really want to find that freedom, the happiness that the Buddha talked about, this is the understanding we have to get very, very clear. Wherever we are, whatever time of day, whatever place, whatever activity, we're on our own with others. It's this understanding we keep developing and coming back to as our refuge. And then it's about wiriya, putting effort into acting in line with that understanding we've developed, to abandon the unwholesome, develop the wholesome. Putting effort into establishing a firm mindfulness, sati, and with the breath, whatever other techniques you're using, have the willingness to keep going back to that based on the, this understanding and this is the way to freedom, developing mindfulness, sustaining it, developing samadhi, then contemplating with clarity. As mindfulness is more sustained, well, the clarity in the contemplation can deepen. As the mindfulness becomes more refined, then it becomes obvious that you know, the, the root cause of our attachment is this body, Sakaya Ditti, this attachment to the sense of self invested in this body. Self-belief, self-view, 
this body is a person, a being, sense of ownership for this body, not yet seeing it as a collection of the four elements, 32 parts, something that's bound to degenerate and decay, disappear. It's just this firm identity, identification, this body, the image of it, the image of self in the body, and obviously with others' bodies as well. The only way you can really address this is to turn our attention inwards, develop that refinement of mindfulness and the one-pointed state where you have enough stillness to be able to look back at your own body with dispassion, detachment, with clarity. Ajahn Chah always said, when you're peaceful, contemplate the body. <coughs> when you're doubting, where should I investigate? Investigate the body. Where do we start? Well, we start with what our preceptor gave us. Just keep looking at it, asking questions, visualizing it. Hair, skin, nails, teeth, bones, the internal organs, the liquids of the body and so on. Just keep visualizing, questioning, looking at, running through. And of course, in the beginning, it's quite time-consuming and energy-consuming because there's so much movement of the mind. Remembering them, thinking about them, visualizing them. We can't do it for very long. The mind's not peaceful enough and it's tiring as well. As we contemplate the body, it's also hard work. It's repulsive, especially as you turn inwards. You're looking at it, developing the awareness with an unbiased state of mind. So we have to see it as it is. It's not pleasant. It's greasy, mucky, smelly. All the things that we try to turn away from in life, they're all there when we start looking. So it's quite tiring. So you might have to do it in short bursts and then do a lot more other practices, just basic samatha and the other skillful, wholesome practices we do just to re-establish that energy, the wholesome energy of samadhi so that we can contemplate further. As we keep developing this, it's only natural that over time as we become more familiar with contemplating the body from different angles, up, down, inside, outside, all of it, then our mind starts to settle and you'll probably find there's one aspect, one part that sticks in the mind better than any other. It's more peaceful to contemplate that one part. It's easier, we can sustain it longer brings a more sense of fulfillment and peace, just contemplating it. So generally we don't endlessly wander around the body indefinitely. Sooner or later we might pick this one part. Could be one of the four elements, could be one of the 32 parts. <coughs> and we start 
settling down on that brings us more stillness. There might be a particular organ of the body, or the blood, or the skin, or a bone, or part of the bone structure. And then we just quietly keep turning to that one image, that one area, sensing it, visualizing it. So it can become quite a regular practice, just turn to it when we've got a few moments spare or when the mind is particularly peaceful, keep turning to it. Maybe a, an image will arise, an image of that part of the body or that aspect of the body. And we can just turn to that image quite easily because mindfulness is well established. Because our sealer is well established, we don't have a lot of issues externally. We know what we should do as a bhikkhu, we're following the routine, keeping the rules. Don't have a lot of issues with other people. So we can quite easily turn inwards. You might keep turning to this one part of the body, mulling it over, looking at it from different angles. Maybe just if it's a visual image, the color changes. You, maybe when you first contemplate it, it's one color. Later on it changes color all by itself as, it, as the image becomes clearer or brighter. And many people have this, contemplate the bones. They might start, start off one color. Maybe brown or dull color, like bones that have been left in the ground for a while. Maybe they brighten up, become very white. Or they start off white and then go dull different organs, the color becomes more intense as you visualize them. Whatever the aspect of the body or the four elements or the 32 parts it is, that image will start to become more familiar. Maybe one can even turn to it with the eyes open in a more public situation when one's not engaging with anyone, not doing any complicated activity, one can still keep an image in mind or turn to it. Sitting in a car or sitting in a room with other people that you're not actually doing very much. There's plenty of times when the mind can turn to that. The reason we're doing this is because that sense of separation between mind and body is becoming clearer as we do this. And the whole way of viewing the body is changing because this, what it does is to help set, reduce that sense of ownership. We're looking at what we call my body, my own body, and now seeing it more as a body. Through this one part or aspect of the body, this sense of just unbiased, detached awareness, seeing it with a new, in a new light. It's just part of nature, four elements, without that sense of ownership. If you keep developing that on and on and on, it becomes this, not only does the image of the body part become clear, but that sense of non-ownership also becomes clear. So the mind is getting more and more used to seeing, looking back at the body, it's aware of it, it's aware of the relationship, the sense of self, but also aware that it's not self. It's ultimately an Ichadukha Anatta. It's not a place 
that we can find true happiness, long-lasting happiness, because it decays, gets old, dies. It's not something inherently beautiful. So it's a quieter or slower, usually slow and quiet revolution of one's perception. The way the mind looks back at this body starts to see it as something that's there. It's not that it doesn't, it's not there. It's not that much of a delusion, it's there. But it's this ownership that's the delusion. And from that, we start to see how we take ownership of everything that we associate with this body. Our possessions, the world, the things of the world. It's all because of this sense of a being, a person, me, mine, myself. That delusion is what leads us to grab hold of everything in this world. It leads to all the suffering we have. The conflict, the competition with others, the dissatisfaction within ourselves, our own self-images we have. I'm this way, I'm that way. I want this, I want that. I'm going to be like this in the future. I was like this in the past. These are the kind of things that are being looked at, even challenged, and one's perception is changing. Obviously that can be quite quite a challenge at times, because it's going against the whole stream of the world. Not only our kilesas, but everyone else's kilesas around us. So it can seem like you're trying to move a mountain, but you move it little by little, piece by piece, small piece by small piece. And it's not necessarily in a smooth path from A to Z going through step by step you know, there's bits that are very hard to move others are easier to move all depends on our karma and depends on how much effort we put into the practice and how much understanding we develop of the practice as we know it's very easy to get sidetracked distracted by our kilesis, by our attachments there's plenty to get distracted by in the world. So it's really up to us to learn to rein in the mind using the training, turn its attention inwards and to develop this ability to investigate and observe truth in this unbiased way, develop the calm, the spaciousness of a peaceful mind and then investigate. And it's really quite a natural process, an automatic process. If you see the truth, the mind doesn't want to keep clinging on to that which brings suffering. It wants to let go because it's peaceful. So sometimes when mindfulness is very strong, samadhi has arisen, contemplation is taking place, then often the sense of letting go is quite automatic. It's not something that has to force through willpower or just squeezing the mind in a certain way. It's quite a natural step seeing the true nature of things and the mind steps back and experiences even more pity and sukha and more brightness, more happiness than before. But the steps have to be there, they have to be in place. We can't force it, we can't make it go faster than it can. We have to 
develop the right causes and conditions through our own practice and then the results will come. So we have this last few weeks, good time just to redouble your efforts in the practice. Use the peace and quiet of the forest. But keep reflecting on what you need to do. So I'll leave you with these words for your contemplation.